Today's reading comes from Jonah 3, whole chapter. Jonah goes to Nineveh. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go out into the city, going on a day's journey, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The word of the Lord. Well, the more that uh, we've been sitting with the book of Jonah, the more it has occurred to me that the book is kind of a parable of the spiritual journey. Um, the opening words we saw a few weeks ago, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah's life is not fully surrendered to the Lord. And now he will say over in verse 9, uh, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So he has no doubts about his theology or his commitment. Uh, he identifies as a follower of the true God. And yet at the same time, he walks away from God. He is still in charge of his own life. He is still on the throne of his own life, even as he identifies as a follower of God. And as I was thinking about that, I, I think that in many ways is, the where, is where we start as Christians. Uh, we have the right theology, we give our life to Christ, but, but we're not used to being under his authority and lordship, and so uh, we don't really know what it means yet to fully yield to, to him. And I'm reminded of... Uh, that wonderful little booklet I mentioned from Bill Bright in 1970s was called Have You Made the Wonderful Discovery of the Spirit-Filled Life? And I think I shared this with you last summer, but uh, Dr. Bright talks about different kinds of Christians and he, he speaks, uh, uh, can we go back to it? Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, he speaks about this person, someone who's received Christ, but 
lives in defeat because he's trying to live his Christian life in his own strength. And the circle there represents our lives. Uh, the, the little dots are the different activities of our life. And in this diagram, the self, my ego is on the throne. Christ is in my life, but uh, he's, not really, uh, he's not really the Lord of my life. And in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about that and calls it being a carnal Christian. And, and I know there's some theological debate about that as there is with everything else, but I think the, the illustration is a very powerful one in that many of us, if not most of us, start the Christian life by inviting Christ into our life, but not fully yielding to him as Lord. We, we kind of hire him as a consultant who, uh, if we like his advice, we'll do it, and if we don't, we'll, we'll let him let him go. Um, when I think of the dominant emotion that fueled my ministry in my late 20s and early 30s, I was thinking about this this week, I would choose the word terror. <laughs> there was a lot of Christ in me. I, I think I wanted to please him. I wanted to serve him. I, I think I wanted to be a good pastor. But at the same time, at the deepest level, I was driven by a terror of failing, of wanting to make my mark on the world, to prove that I was competent and successful. And a, a memory came back to me this week. It was June of 1987. My brother-in-law, Joe Key, who was the worship pastor with me for many years, uh, we were driving out uh, to come to Knoxville to plant, plant the church. And uh, we didn't have enough money. I had this little 84 pickup truck and so we would find a place to hide off the side of the road where we would sleep <laughs> during the night. Joe's 6'6", and so I'll never forget waking up and seeing his feet sticking out over the edge of the pickup truck. And I remember coming over the Cumberland Plateau uh, to, to come and plant Fellowship Church, and I just remember feeling, I can't fail at this. I must prove that I'm successful. So I was a bit like Jonah. Maybe you are too, that, that, that at some unconscious level in your early years, maybe it, was, maybe it was a little bit more about you than God. Maybe it was a little bit more about you inviting God into your life to help you do the things that you wanted to do for him. I think that's the way a lot of us start. Well, God loves us uh, not to leave us that way, and so usually he sends a whale. <laughs> he allows us to go through a season of spiritual disorientation or suffering or questioning or depression. Uh, we looked at that season in Jonah's life last week in Jonah 2. Uh, Jonah, in the whale, he says, I called out of my distress, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. He felt like he was in hell. Your waves passed over me. He thought he was drowning. I'm driven away from your sight. He felt far from the Lord. And all of this takes place for three days and three nights. And as Christians, we look at that and we are reminded, of course, of the death and resurrection of our Lord. And, and so Christians have read in this story this, this metaphor for the spiritual life, that there are seasons in your life when God will send a whale and, and, and he will allow you to go through depression and disorientation and doubt and suffering and pain in order that you will be resurrected, uh, that you'll be able to discern your calling in a new way. 
And Jonah does live, as we saw chapter 2 ends, and the Lord spoke to the great fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So Jonah gets a fresh, if slimy, start on his new life. Recently, about five people have either mentioned or given me the book The Second Mountain by David Brooks, um, the New York Times columnist. It's very different than he usually writes about politics. This is actually about his journey to faith. It's really a remarkable book. And he says that in life we're to climb two mountains. The first mountain is the mountain of worldly success, career ambition, traveling in the right social circles. But eventually we figure out that the first mountain is not enough. We realize that there is a second mountain to climb. And that mountain is about service to God and others. And he says... You might find happiness on the first mountain, but you only find joy on the second one. And then he talks about the valley between the first and the second mountain. He calls that valley the wilderness. For him, it was his divorce. He said in 2013 that that divorce left him unplanted, lonely, humiliated, and scattered. But looking back, it also led to his spiritual and vocational awakening. The book that helped me most during my time in the belly of the whale was uh, Parker Palmer's Let Your Life Speak. And he talks very honestly about a time in his life when he was in the belly of the whale and became depressed because he realized he was living other people's lives. And his words are worth quoting. As the darkness began to descend on me in my early 20s, I thought I'd developed a terminal case of failure. I didn't realize that I'd merely embarked on a journey towards joining the human race. Trying to live someone else's life or to live by an abstract norm will invariably fail and even do great damage. Vocation comes from listening. I must listen to my life and try to understand what it's truly about, quite apart from what I would like it to be about. There's nothing easy about these belly-of-the-whale times. Um, they're hard. And there are these times of kind of stripping away of our ego, of our self-reliance, of a sense that we are actually good at running our own lives. And that's hard. And uh, for many of us, there's kind of this odd feeling when you go through it that uh, everything that you thought you were going for suddenly doesn't mean much anymore. I remember... In the middle of mine, I was, I was on a jet ski. Um, it was late falls, about this time of year. There were no boats on the lake. The, the leaves were turning to autumn and gold and, and brown, and winter was not far uh, behind. And, and I just, went, just kept going on the ski. And I remember having this thought, um, is my life over? Because for the first time since I was like eight, I had no vision. I had no sense of what I was on the earth to do. And, and I remember thinking, I got four kids, I, I had a lovely wife. I hope I don't die this fall. Maybe you've been there, maybe you've not. But it, I, I, it was not a pleasant experience. But I could see now what God was doing. He was um, stripping me in the belly of the whale to prepare me for what was next. Well, Jonah does cry out. He does move towards God. 
He's given a second chance. And then we read, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. When, when, when you say there's no grace in the Old Testament, <laughs> you haven't read it quite right. This is grace. Thank God. Thank God that the word of the Lord comes a second time. Thank God keeps, that he keeps calling us, keeps reminding us, keeps inviting us. You know, I don't know about you. It just seems like sometimes we fall asleep as the years go by. And we forget what we were put on the earth to, to do. And then God sends his word to call you a second time, to wake you up, to remind you. Here's a fun little experiment you might try this week. Think about when you were 10 years old. If you can, find a picture of it. What did you do on a summer afternoon when you were 10? What gave you joy when you were 10? What did play look like when you were 10? And those are some of the hints, some of the clues of the word of the Lord. And one of the things that happens after the belly of the whale is that he comes back to us and he says, he says, you know, that part of you that's creative that you dropped because your dad said you had to get a business degree, um, go find that again. You know that love that you have for young mothers that you gave up because of the trauma in your own life when you got pregnant out of wedlock and you let that go, go, go pick that up again. You know that dream you had about a business that you let go of years ago because, well, it just wasn't practical and it, by the way, you're kind of a sinner anyway and who are you to dream like that? Go pick that up again. You might be thinking, no, no, Doug, you don't understand. There's too much water under the bridge. I just, too much pain, too many scars, too many bad choices. Okay, pause. Wait a second. Do you remember what book we're reading? <laughs> this man is an anti-hero. He, he is a racist. Do you pick that up yet, right? He hates the Ninevites because they're a different culture and ethnicity. He doesn't want them to experience God's love. He's disobedient. And yet, God calls him again. You know, I, I think this can happen for churches and organizations too. Maybe if you run a business or lead a team or a department, or in our case, maybe if you're in leadership at a church. I think sometimes the word comes to an organization or a church a second time, especially when over time, maybe you lost, you lost a little bit of the original calling. Something I think a lot about. Um, I guess they call it mission drift in organizational leadership, but uh, maybe you could even pray about this for us as a church. Are there pieces of our original vision, and this applies even if you weren't here in the beginning, uh, are there pieces of our original vision that maybe we lost along the way? That maybe we forgot? Or maybe uh, it was too painful and we dropped it? Or... Maybe we got in a fight about it and didn't want to talk about it anymore. 
And could the word of the Lord be coming a second time saying, hey, you know, things are good, but remember that piece? Remember that? I called you to that too. Would you pick that back up? The word of the Lord comes a second time. And then, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out the message that I tell you. Uh, the Hebrew word for arise, it's used many times in the Old Testament and the New, and I did a little word study. Uh, sometimes it means getting up out of a sick bed, standing up after falling down, rising up for military action, rising up from mourning, starting a journey, and it, it implies a settled passive state, right? I mean, you don't tell somebody to get up if they're not down. And so Jonah has not like sprinted towards Nineveh in full obedience with you know, his hands in praise to obey the word of the Lord. Evidently, when he got spit up, he just pitches his tent and says, enough already, I'm sitting right here. And the Lord says, arise, get going, move. I know there are times for healing in our life. I mean, there are times when we need to rest. And there are times when we just need to stop. But the Christian life is one of pilgrimage. It is one of movement. It is not one of settling in and stopping. I heard a powerful sermon uh, this week by a young preacher named Jonathan Martin. And uh, somebody sent it to me. It was on Jeremiah 29, 4 to 7, which is my life verse. And so whenever I hear a sermon on that, I, I listen to it. I think it was called Living in Exile. And that's the passage where God's people are living in exile in Babylon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's armies had sacked Jerusalem, drugged them 700 miles across the desert into captivity. Now they're living in refugee camps. They hate it. And so they're sitting around at night pining for the good old days back in Jerusalem when they had power and resources and respect and things were the way they were supposed to be in the world. And Jeremiah comes and says, hey, y'all, get over that. You ain't going back. Not in my lifetime, not in yours. You're in exile now. This is the new normal. Seek the peace of this city. You're not going back. I was really convicted by that. Um, and he made a great application. He said, Christians so often particularly Christians of a certain age, I think he was thinking maybe of like my age, we can kind of pine for the good old days. And even in my lifetime, there was a different era. There was a different day. And when I got off the truck in 1987, it was different in the South. There was still sort of a Southern something Christian-y that was going on here and people still went to church and pastors got free haircuts and there were revivals in the church and a, a big page on religion in the paper and uh, it was a different day and you didn't have, you had three TV stations and no cell phones and no podcasts and no social media and so preaching was kind of a big deal and people were bored anyway and so they would come and show up and and the reality is now we've lost all of that and I pay for my haircuts and all these things anymore. So, and sometimes I look back, now I know this is another sermon, they weren't really the good old days, right? There was a lot wrong in those good old days. But sometimes I think, my goodness, 
I wish we could go back. And Jeremiah is saying, mm-mm, mm-mm, gone forever. Don't cling to the past. Move into the future. Arise, go. Go into the city in fresh new ways. I just found that so encouraging. And, and really, this is how I think I've come to think about the future of the church in America. I used to see us at, at the end of a great decline, that I was presiding over the decay of a great institution. And now I see myself at the beginning of a new revolution, pioneering the great new kingdom opportunities that lie before us. And I think that's what our church is called to do. But to do that, you know what? We've got to arise. We've got to go wherever he calls us. So we don't need another museum for a Billy Graham revival in 1976. Sorry, enough of those. That, that's worth it, but that's not, we don't need any more museums. We need a future. It's time to look forward, not backward. I keep thinking the Monday Night Bible Study has been working with this idea of acedia from the church fathers. Uh, and of course, traditionally, that's described spiritual sloth or laziness. And then um, I think Mark Payton, one of the teachers there, shared me a, a fuller definition. Acedia is not the avoidance of work. It's the avoidance of work that God called you to do at this moment. I think that is so important. You have heard the word of the Lord a second time. But for some reason, you're not responding. And I know there's lots of good reasons. But for some reason, you're not responding. Eventually, you'll fall asleep. You'll get spiritually sluggish. One of the wonderful things of our great God is he keeps inviting us into our story over and over again. Friday at lunch, again, guys, we have this little Bible study at lunch, and uh, we were talking about this, and Blair Wright, he compared his experience of this to listening to Siri on Google Maps. And then when you take a wrong turn, she says, you know, recalculating and gives you the guidance again from wherever you are. And that's such a great picture because that's what God is like. He, he, he's not tearing the map up and saying, you missed the road. Over. He's saying, recalculating. Let's pick it up from here. The only thing you can do wrong is throw the phone out the window and stop listening. So is the word of the Lord coming to you a second time? Is God reminding you of a calling you have ignored or forgotten? And if so, will you arise? Will you go? Well, we know, uh, we've seen the rest of the story. He does go into the city. He calls out. And I don't, I don't know, I might be reading too much into it. This is the shortest sermon in the history of the church. And I, I get the feeling that he's sort of grumpy as he says it. 
uh, and that he might be mumbling it so no one can hear it. Uh, uh, Yet 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believe God. There's this revival. The king repents. uh, The people repent. The dogs repent. Everybody repents. And they cry out to God, and he gives them mercy. And that in itself, I think, teaches us a whole lot about God and how he uses us and that we don't have to be Billy Graham. But I want to end with with this rhythm that I see in the book of Jonah that I think applies to us as a church and as a people. Uh, I think this happens over and over again. The word of the Lord comes a second time. We arise and go. God blesses and provides. I've seen that cycle over and over and over again in my life, in our church, in my own personal life. Now, if I were writing the book of Jonah, I'd have ended it right here. Wouldn't it have been a better book if we could end it in chapter 3? <laughs> Jonah and the Ninevites live happily ever after, but it doesn't end there. And we will look at that when we open Jonah up next time. We have another poem. I've invited you to write poetry in response to your interaction with this powerful book. And Laura Cottrell is going to share with you uh, a poem now about Jonah. This is called Coincidence. Was it intentional or was it coincidence that the two men both had a penchant for falling asleep on boats in the middle of storms? The casting call for archetypal prophets requires a certain disregard for personal safety. Running from the presence is at least as risky as snoozing through a hurricane in the bottom of a boat. Thrown overboard, a sacrifice to a god who is revealing himself to have quite different plans to one's own. A desert walk parallel complete with baptismal dunking, three days in the belly of death, and all a revelation of a deep sea of grace. Thank you, Lord.